Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the Tactical Analyst. Stop me if you've heard this before. Jose Mourinho is beyond reproach. He's been let down by his players. Doubt him, and you're free to count his medals. Now, I'm not disrespecting his record, trophies lace his CV. But that was then, this is now. Seven months into the job at Spurs, he's winning few friends. I recognise this is a difficult question for you, Seb, because you're emotionally invested in the club. (laughs) But has he already outstayed his welcome? That's probably a little strong. I mean, you say I'm emotionally invested... I think the the most damaging effect of this little spell has been, from a personal standpoint, I've become emotionally uninvested because it all feels so familiar for the reasons you've just listed. We've got declining performances, a lot of excuses, players taking the blame, every department of the of the side deteriorating at the moment. There's there isn't a single area of the of the team at Spurs which has improved since Jose Mourinho arrived at the same time I'm I I hear people who are questioning his job security the two things to say about that are first well he's staying because it's just too expensive to sack him the second is it's too early as well because I I don't think the blame for the situation lies with Jose Mourinho I think you have to look at what Tottenham are I think you have to look at the examine the basis by which they made this decision you know how was it that a squad that had been put together to suit Mauricio Pochettino, was then deemed to be suited to Jose Mourinho's management. It's absolutely ridiculous. I think the out, the the outcome of this is not to question what Jose Mourinho is, because we know all of these things. We know about the second and third act in his career. We know how far away from that original European Cup winning character he is now. The question to ask is, what were the processes by which he arrived at the club? Why is Daniel Levy making sporting decisions? This has to be the conclusion. This has to be the point at which people say, 
if you want to be a grown-up football club, you have to have the grown-up football structure. And I think that's my frustration. I think the question is, why is this all so predictable? So when Jose Mourinho walked through the door, we knew he would alienate people. We knew that certain players would be victims of his approach. In this instance, it's been the club's record signing. Why is it that nobody within the club saw this coming? Now, it's almost worth posing that question to Adrian you know, before me because I, I feel like I, I'm too frustrated by it, to be clear-headed. I'm too... I'm too annoyed to be rational, but this seems to be the case. I, I, I still, you know, all these months later, I still haven't heard a justification for why Jose Mourinho was given this job ahead of anybody else. Why was it, why was it imperative not just to appoint him, but to pay him that amount of money to do, to, 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 to be in this position? This is not a, an appointment that was, was based on merit. Um, yeah. Please, someone correct me. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that, but we're almost in a sort of a West Ham type scenario here. You've got a club which was bold enough and brave enough to you know, spend a billion pounds of other people's money on a, a fantastic stadium. You've got basically in employing Mourinho, you've got a manager who I think fundamentally misunderstands the importance of a club's culture and identity. And basically because he's too consumed with his own identity. Is that, am I being fair there, Aid? I don't think Jose Mourinho gives a hoot about a club's identity, you know, or, you know, past particularly, the culture, so to speak. He, he just is himself, isn't he? I think I think that Seb makes some really good points, definitely in regards to Daniel Levy making this call and, and not someone with what you'd regard as, as football expertise or experienced football expertise. It's it was an appointment, wasn't it? That basically ripped up the plan and of of building through Pochettino, a young coach. I think he was right to go. He, I think his energy levels had, had kind of vanished, Pochettino, and I do think a change was necessary. But to rip it up and basically go for go for Mourinho was a sign that a sign of panic. Actually, in my opinion, we just want to win. We don't really it doesn't really matter how we win anymore. We just need to get a trophy now because that's what Jose Mourinho does or at least that's what Daniel Levy thought when he appointed him. I think he disregarded or buried his head in the sand in regards to what he brings to the table, the animosity, the friction, the bad rep for the club because he will always cause cause problems in the media, alienating players. Yeah, it's, it's disappointing. Uh, for, looking at it from a purely football perspective i i go back to something seb mentioned who has he improved which players have got better under jose Mourinho? i I don't think i've got enough hands on both fingers to to list the players that have gone backwards but i don't know who has improved and that is coaching and that is you know that's supposed to be an elite coach on 15 million pounds a year I don't think he's. I, I don't think he is what he used to be, unfortunately. And I don't believe that modern players respond to his style of management. And I also think he's 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 he's. A, I'm not calling him a dinosaur, but I don't think he has moved with the with the times. And he struggles against some of these modern thinkers that have emerged as as dugout rivals for him. So yeah, look, it's, it was it was it was a truly awful appointment. It was it was made in my view simply. We have to win a trophy. 
just and and that that will fix everything and 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 it hasn't happened hey can i just jump in there because there's there's a couple of things that bother me about this is that like the idea that a chairman of a football club thinks that the route to trophies now lies solely in a managerial appointment it's so naive you do not win anything because of this old school you know this messiah type model a football club is 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 is, is, is the sum of a football club's parts is really the only thing that matters. How do these departments join up, the technical department, the recruiting department, data analytics? You do not, we are not back in the sort of the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, maybe you appoint us to Alex Ferguson and you have 25 years of decadent success. It just doesn't exist anymore. And if Daniel Levy really thinks, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if you examine Daniel Levy's record for, for appointing managers, it is very poor. He got very fortunate with Mirazio Pochettino. That was an excellent appointment. But I think the the product of that spell has been to kind of create the idea that Daniel Levy is the right person to to make these decisions. If you look at his back catalogue and you look at the Santinis and the Ramoses, and you know, I, I, I quite liked Andre Villas Burst, but that didn't work either. And Martin Yol fell into his lap as a result of Santini failing. You know, Redknapp was Redknapp, and you know. Uh, to be honest, uh, you know, uh, the average bloke down the pub could have made that appointment. It's just, um, <laughs> it speaks of an incredible naivety. Yes. Like it's a kind of, it also, like I have my own theory about this and this represents my opinion rather than any, uh, it's not based on any, anything factual. I've always thought this was made because Marino turned Levy down back in 20, uh, 2007. This is a kind of, I can do this now. You know, this is, this is, this is an appointment that I can make. I have the infrastructure and the wealth to to put him in charge of my football club and I'm going to do it whether it's the right thing to do or not and I absolutely hate that. Who chooses because... the players at Spurs by the way? Who who's the who's the well Steve Hitchens the head scout um has kind of evolved into a kind of more of a director of football role but it's quite nebulous. I mean it's not there's not the sort of the the definition that you have at a club like Liverpool for instance. It's more of an Arsenal situation actually just without the personnel. It's a kind of decision by committee. So certainly when Pochettino was at the club, he was a voice in that conversation, but not the primary voice. So now I don't know. I don't know what kind of influence Mourinho is going to have on on um, recruitment. I mean, he said, um, obviously, the, the January edition of Steven Bergwijn, that wasn't his idea. He's been pleasantly surprised by Bergwijn. Um, so, you know, terrific. But it does suggest that he hasn't come in with a, a recruiting mandate. Yeah. Um, just this, whole thing is, the... this whole thing is going nowhere good. Like in, yeah, in, in, it's just... Sorry, yeah, I just look at the defence with with Alderweireld and Vertonghen sort of ostracised, and you know various issues going on there, and and you just think with Sanchez and and Dyer, absolute absolute state of their performance against Sheffield United was was a, was a shocker, wasn't it? And the attitudes, the recovery runs, just the just the desire to defend wasn't wasn't there. Aurier, we know, can't defend. Even even Ben Davis is sort of, sort of caught was catching the problem in the last game. He just just wonder whether he can set a team up to defend like he like he used to be able to. It's it's a really strange one because that's one thing you could rely on with Jose. He would organise a team to be to be hard to beat. Just wonder whether it's it's down to the players not being good enough or or, or the impact of his coaching. But you know, it's we're, we're talking about team development here. Well, it it's not as simple as as replacing you know a serial underachiever like Aurier, for instance, with a relatively cheap exceptionally promising player like a, a Max Ahrens or whatever. You know, you look back, 
we'll talk about Manchester United later, but they could have had Bruno Fernandes and didn't because of the money aspects of it, presumably. So to your point, Seb, you are looking at a club which has become factionalised. And if you're going to have anyone to unite a club, Mourinho is not that man. There are better models out there. You know, we're talking the morning after Southampton defeated Manchester City. And I thought Ralph Hassenhuttl gave a real coaching masterclass against Pep in that game. I thought he was terrific. Okay, you know, if you look at the the actual stats of that game, I think City had as many shots in losing to Southampton, which was 25, as Leicester did in beating beating Southampton 9-0. But the point remains, there are better models out there that Tottenham could and maybe should have had. I can't argue with any of that. I heard a couple of people on social media equating that Southampton performance to the... um, the Spurs game against Man City that they won 2-0, I mean, they're, they're not similar. The Man City performance at White Hart Lane, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, was just comedic. It was just a, a comedy of missed chances, missed penalties, bad decisions, Zinchenko getting himself sent off. Whereas, in reality, Southampton defended quite well. The thing that worries me, Mike, is you guys touched on it earlier. The, the thing that Marino is supposed to guarantee you is solidity. And the only defensive improvement that I've seen over these last seven months has come from just stacking players behind the ball. There's no, there's been no sort of systemic improvement. There's been no, there's been no sense that the centre halves, the fullbacks, the defensive midfielders, that they are, they are wedded to any kind of structure. It's a let's just pack the middle of the pitch and hope for the best because that's what it's been. It's been like that against Manchester City. It was like that against Manchester United. It was like that against Liverpool. And then when the ball gets the other side of the halfway line, no one has any idea what to do with it. It's just, uh, let's make it up as we go along. It is quite literally like watching a group of players who have had no instruction whatsoever when they have the ball at their feet. And it's just, it's it's ad-libbed. The whole thing is ad-libbed. Yeah, on that, I, I'm glad Mike mentioned Bruno Fernandes. You've seen what, what, what can happen when you need, when you get that link player. A really good player that links the midfield to the attack with quality and with speed. And what Spurs have is, Spurs have good forwards. They're very quick forwards. You know, Harry Kane, that's not his key strength, but he's a brilliant finisher. Everyone else is very quick and direct. What they need is that conduit, someone, someone to, to, to split the defences on those counters, someone to pick the right pass. And I think Christian Eriksen used to be that guy to some degree, and he was by some distance their best creator. And, and, and I look around now and think, who is going to be that person? And, yeah, just, just wonder what the club are thinking in, in not effectively replacing Ericsson. That is, that is the missing piece in the jigsaw. From your perspective, Aid, how much blame needs to be attached to the players themselves? You know, do you agree, for instance, uh, I noticed Raphael van der Vaart over the weekend was saying, look, Tottenham have got players who think they're better than they are. And lest we forget, they are probably the same ones who let down Pochettino as well. So how, how much blame does, do the players need to accept? Yeah, look, I thought the performance against Sheffield United was really bad and I thought the attitude wasn't, wasn't good. It's not like that every week with Spurs. They've you know, put in some, some more respectable displays and the attitude has been OK. I think that in general, footballers respond to the gaffer. Now, they're a little bit sheep-like footballers, if, if I'm being honest. You get the odd exception that will be absolutely 100% self-driven and self-motivated all the time 
and they'll never lower their standards. But but in general, teams respond to the leader and 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 they are the people that that maintain standards and drive up standards. I just look at, at Spurs right now, and I just see that standards are slipping. And is is Jose the the manager, the head coach? Is he doing enough about that? That's what I would query right now. So yeah, look, players have to look at themselves, but but you can go back in the history of time if if they are motivated by the by the person in charge and the general vibe in the dressing room. And if you give them a bit of rope, they they'll take it. Footballers, they're, they're strange beasts like that. So um, so yeah, I would I would still say that it's the is the head coach responsibility to get minds and attitudes right. Well, let's look at Manchester United then. You know, we've talked in the past, haven't we, about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and our doubts about him. Yet they go to Aston Villa on Thursday on a roll. 16 matches unbeaten, five goals at Old Trafford in the Premier League for the first time since December 2011. You've got a team flowing. You've got a team which is basically new new reputations are being forged almost every match. Now, the, the reputation that everyone is going to talk about at the moment is Mason Greenwood, youngest Manchester United player to 15 goals since Norman Whiteside. Is he a generational talent, Seb? Oh, uh, big tag that, Mike. I'm not sure about that at the moment. I'm just in the enjoying watching him stage. He's so expressive and so direct and so confident. In a way, it's, it's it's quite encouraging that I don't think that he's a generational talent because he's just one of so many gifted players. I was actually, before we started, I was doing a little tally of, of the uh, the players of his generation, or so not of his age, but of his kind of age group that England will have the benefit of in over the next sort of decade. It's amazing. I think he is of his generation, but I don't know... I mean, and that's the joy of it, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know what he's going to turn into yet. I don't know sort of what his, his long-term position is. I don't know how his abilities are going to mature. He's just, um, it's so much fun to watch a, a player of that age be so bold on the ball. It's been an absolute joy. Well, he's better than Cristiano Ronaldo was when he joined Manchester United as a, as a teenager. In my opinion, you think about that. Not to build him up. No, no <laughs> I, I know. I know exactly what I've just done there. <laughs> but I've Take gone against you. Well, I do think I do think he's a bit special. I, I'm prepared to sort of hang my hat on on this boy. I think he's he's very special. Fode and level brilliance, really, in my opinion. I think the pair of them could could be, yeah, could be global stars. I, I genuinely think that because they're so good at at such a a young age, technically, temperament, and and you just have to look at the way he strikes a ball, and, and I think that that can make a big difference. He's got the Bits of guile, really clever with the way that, that, that he disguises his shooting. I think that's a key asset. But the way he strikes the ball with both feet is just incredible. He doesn't have a weakness. And defenders, therefore, they can't show him one way or the other because he can go right and spank it top corner. And he can do the same on the left. It, I do I do think he is, he is exceptional. Look at, talking to the front players by the way I've got some stats for you well for on Greenwood eight Premier League goals from 16 shots on target that's a phenomenal strike rate um in terms of minutes per goal Greenwood 115 minutes per goal Bruno Fernandes 128 Martial and Rashford both 147 minutes per goal Manchester United have four players with a better than one in two record uh significantly better that is that is scary. If they get the rest of their team right, 
that means they've got the, they've got the the firepower to really compete at the top end of the table. It's um, yeah, you can't you can't hide away from those figures. They're Premier League numbers. They're not just in all competitions. They're not skewed by the Europa League. I, th- I think that they they've got a frighteningly good forward line. And yeah, Greenwood, well, the potential is huge. Yeah, I suppose you know what we're looking at here is a very modern issue, isn't it? That always in the past at Manchester United, they were very good, or specifically Sir Alex Ferguson was very good at shielding a Ryan Giggs or a Beckham from the hype. Now that was then, and this is now to repeat myself from earlier on it's a much more difficult age for a young player to grow up in and if you think about it injury could take its toll you know I mentioned Norman Whiteside earlier on there was someone who who came in and you know was was exceptional and his body let him down but you've now got the goldfish bowl which is getting bigger and more transparent and more dangerous, let's let's be honest. If you're Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Seb, do you wrap him up in cotton wool? I don't know that you can, Mike, because, I mean, unlike uh, the Ryan Giggs example is really pertinent because obviously there was a, got a book on my shelf which contains uh, Hugh McIlvenny's first interview with Ryan Giggs, which was a big deal because it was the first time that Alex Ferguson had allowed one. In this instance the dynamic is completely different because players have access to the wider world in the way that they didn't. You don't get to shield someone because they've got their own social media account, they've got their Instagram, they've got their Twitter, they've got their Facebook. So I don't know what, what Oli Solskjaer can do other than mandating that none of his players can 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 have an online profile, which I, I don't know I don't know if that's particularly productive because I think um in some instances, because of the way the world is and because of how dangerous it can be for people in the public eye if they make mistakes or they make errors of judgment. I think it's a very good way to, to, to grow up in a lot of ways. There's a lot of responsibility there that um, that players of a different era didn't necessarily have. So you can't, for instance, you know, you, you're not going to get away with going for drinks after uh, after a game. You're not going to because there's going to be someone there with a camera and a Twitter account. So I don't know. And also, listen, I mean, a lot of these players are quite expressive in their playing style. I would be very wary without, you know, being sort of doing the kind of cod psychology routine. I'd be very wary of, of curbing anything about their personalities at the moment because this is what's working. Adrian's just quoted um, an incredibly impressive list of statistics which attest to this. They are a, they're being allowed to be, if that makes sense. And that seems to be the essence of their He's got a perfect role model as well in Marcus Rashford, someone that has been allowed, has been trusted. He's been trusted to be himself and being himself as well he's done himself his family the, the club proud the country proud and yeah he's got someone to look up up to there Giggs he did the same something similar with a class of 92 he was a year above them of course but he was the one propelled into the first team much much sooner than the likes of, of Beckham and Skulls and whatnot and he he was there then you know very, lived lived properly I think especially in those young you know early days and and the players learned learned from him. And I think Seb touched on a very, very important point. The the, the golden talents of years gone by had distractions and attitude, you know, players behaved differently. There was always the temptation to 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 go to you know, turn to booze, so to speak, or or get involved in in, in gambling and and whatnot. And I I feel that the modern players 
Partly because of the, the way the academies are set up these days with the way the clubs look after them from, from a very young age and, and try and instill the right sort of values. I do feel, and the fact that social media is so prevalent, they, they know where the line is and what they can and can't do. I, I just feel that the modern footballer, the youngsters, live a very boring life, a very sensible life. And that ultimately, I think, is conducive to, to having more longevity at the, at the top of the game, you know, barring injury, of course, which, which you can't always do too much about. What strikes me is that the, the, the younger players that we're talking about, you know, let's be specific, Rashford, Raheem Sterling, the two really good examples, they're very influenced by the way that prominent athletes in North America, you know, specifically in the NBA, are actually projecting themselves and using their platform positive in a positive manner. I suppose the danger is always going to be that the player or the young man regards himself as a brand rather than a footballer. And when you have that sort of superficiality around you and you judge yourself by other standards rather than the ones that you need to do and the stats that you were talking about, Aid, that's going to be the key is basically... Concentrate on the game. Well, it comes man. down to the individual, doesn't it? Ronaldo has, uh, I mean, he's one of the most sort of um, sponsored athletes in, in history, yet he's always managed to prioritise the football, hasn't he? And, that, and that's the reason he's, he's, he's stayed so successful for so long. You can be a brand, but, but always make sure that the football comes first. It's, it's pretty simple. And a lot of that depends on you from within, and obviously the people that you associate with most closely, hopefully Greenwood and Foden and 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 guys like Rashford and Sterling have got have got the right the right people to advise. Yeah. What about the value of experience, Seb? Now I'm thinking specifically here of Chelsea. Now they're at Palace on Tuesday. It's been very striking that that Villian has has, has been exceptional over the last couple of games. Giroud pops up at the weekend. Even Zuma came in and was a decent stopgap at central defence. Do we sometimes underestimate the value of that experience? I think so, but I, I think it's important to define what we mean there because I, there's, there's different types of experience, aren't there? There's, there's mm. you know, the, the kind which it just relates to a player who has made 300, 400 appearances versus the player that has actually, has actually experienced useful scenarios which he's able to relate to, to, to teammates in his career. Now, I think kind of the, the commodity that you have to value is the winner in the team. Now, the, and, and the, the one that I always go back to actually is uh, Esteban Cambiasso at Leicester City. Player comes in, has a fantastic attitude, um, doesn't have airs and graces, but just sets an example quietly. I'm not a great believer in just um, experience for experience sake. I believe in talent. I believe in ability. I believe in goal scoring, you know, making tackles, headers, that kind of thing. So the, the sort of the more literal elements in the game. But I think when you have a, a case like Chelsea, when you are when your framework is essentially based on a lot of young players, which is going to increase because Werner is still a young player. Ziyech is not young, but his you know he is not a he's not someone that has experienced something like the Premier League before. I mean, he's um, he's played in a second tier league all of his career up until now. So you have to have the right balance of personality and, and probably personality is the word that I use over experience. I think you've got to have players in any team who know the route between 
minute zero, minute 90, in terms of how you win, how you encounter the peaks and the troughs of a game. So actually, um, what's interesting, we, we began this pod by talking about Tottenham. Now, you've got a lot of players there who have a lot of experience, who've got a lot of games under their belt, who have played in the Champions League, the Premier League, FA Cup, everything, international football, World Cups. And yet their response to certain situations, VAR, for instance, Jose Mourinho mentioned this, is absolutely dreadful. So it's not just the experience, it's the type of personality which goes with that experience, which really matters. I get the impression very much that, that character will be central to Frank Lampard's recruitment policy as well. You know, he, as, as an individual, he's got you know, very strong values, I feel. Let's look at Pulisic. Is the challenge to keep him fit or just to keep him confident? <laughs> well, definitely both. I mean, when, he, when Pulisic is confident then he, he is a heck of an asset for Chelsea. No question about that. He's he's so sharp, isn't he, at the moment? Just lightning on those transitions. He, he He's beating players at real speed. There's no hesitation in his play. So, no, they've got themselves a, a good player there. He looks he looks like he might he might provide good value for money over, over a period of years. Chelsea have got a lot of strength, haven't they? Right across there. Their midfield, you've got to say, through central midfield, where you've got, you know, younger players like Mount and Gilmore, coupled with Conte, Jorginho, Kovacic, the list goes on, Barkley. And then out wide, you, we've already mentioned Willian and Pulisic, you've got, you've got Hudson-Odoi, Loftus-Cheek can, can, can do that, Zayic is coming in. It's, it, is, it is scary. It's, it's really at the, at the top and, and back of the side where, where Chelsea need to focus their attention now. They need to get a better centre-back, get a dominant goalkeeper. And, uh, well, they've sorted out the, the top end of the pitch with Timo Werner, haven't they? So so really, it is it is just at, at the rear end where, where Frank needs to focus. And, and, yeah, I do think that he will, will look towards personality. Interesting, wasn't it, to see him linked heavily today, I believe it was, with, with Declan Rice again, sees him as a future centre-half in the John Terry mould. Obviously, we spoke about him the other day. I, I do think that he, he he has potential to to be successful as a centre half or or a central midfielder in in a top side, Declan Rice, and he, he's definitely a player of character. And, and we know that he's best buddies with Mason Mount. We know he's a good lad, Declan Rice, and I think that that, that will go a long way in regards to Frank Lampard's thinking. I, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'd actually be surprised if Lampard doesn't make a substantial bid for, for Declan Rice. Mm. Do you think that Chelsea uh, will keep their place in the top four? Ooh, I mean, if you'd asked me three weeks ago, I'd say definitely yes. But all of a sudden, Leicester have recovered. Manchester United look absolutely red hot. I think it's going to be one of the situations where it's going to depend on the, the cast judgment, which comes down on a week today. If fifth place becomes a Champions League qualifying position, then yes, I'd say so. If not, it's going to become really, really tight over the last few weeks. So, I, I mean, I, I it, Chelsea probably the one that I have the doubts over just because <clears throat> they're too reliant on um, on a narrow group of players. So I kind of, I, Giroud is still far too important to them. Uh, Willian is still far too important. Not because these aren't good players, it's just because these are players right at the end of the cycle. And it kind of relates to what we've just spoken about is do we trust some of these young players, not to express their ability, but to show their ability at absolutely the right moment? I'm not quite sure I'm at that stage with them yet. If you're looking at the top four, probably Leicester at Arsenal on Tuesday is a pivotal game. 
you know, obviously you follow Arsenal very closely, Aid. If you look at that, what is it? Four wins on the bounce, three in a week. What has changed at Arsenal since that Brighton fiasco? <laughs> they changed the formation, which is which is important. I, it's it's a three four three at the moment, but but in certain matches that that will be tweaked. He's he's got different nuances to it, and. That's part of the reason, because I think he realised that he, he can't really trust David Luiz or, or Shkodran Mustafi in, in a back four. So having that third defender gives him more, more confidence in the team. And actually, it, it frees up players ahead of ahead of them as well. You've, you, effectively, uh, at Wolves, for example, you, you had Kolasinac and Tierney. Well, Saka was in the team, so three left-backs. But Kolasinac and Tierney were able to cover off the left-hand side with the Bamiyang, then then basically allowed to stay on the halfway line, ready ready for breakaways because there was that security. And this is against the Wolves team. They've got Doherty and Traore, who are sensational down that flank. So 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 the new shape suits, suits the Bamiyang for sure. And I do think, and I think this is where you you you're getting getting at, is is the Gwendouzi situation, the the Urzel players that are not involved at the moment, even though we think they're they're fit and available. I, I feel that he's he's made a big deal of, of discipline and trust. Who can I trust? Can I trust you or not? Can I look you in the eye? And if I give you instructions, will you follow them? And over the course of the last four games in all competitions, his players have delivered for him. They've really been disciplined on the pitch. And, and as a consequence, the standards have risen across the board. You know, everything that Arsenal are doing right now is much more professional. It's less, you know... It's less uh, off the cuffness. It's a bit more structure to it, and yeah, it it does stem, I think, from from a real, real tough line or a hard line stance with Gwendouzi, as as if to say, look, if if you if if you if you're going to behave or misbehave there, and and I don't feel I can trust you to stay on the pitch because you're going to lose your head, then that then you're not going to be involved, and I, and I think that message has, has struck home to the other players, and and also. Why you got me? I, th- I think that his faith in the kids is is really beginning to impact the side. Those players are feeling so at home under this manager, and it's it's freshened up the team no end. I mean, Nketiah, Willock, Saka, they're they're all every game that they're making a difference for, for Arsenal. It's it's really really positive. I think he's doing a terrific job. Really do. Hey, do you think Quentin has to be a sort of a um, a sacrifice here? just for the sake of setting an example about what an Arsenal player is going to be going forward. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I think that one of the first things he said in his press conference when he was unveiled as the manager was about standards on and off the pitch, about about you know, he wants good people. And I'm not saying Gwendouz is not a good person. I'm not saying that. But but in a football environment, you you need players you can trust and that are, that are reliable. And, and yes, I, I do think he's made an example of him. And if that means selling him to, to, to invest in others. I, th- I don't think he'd be afraid to do it. We, 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 you were talking earlier, just a few minutes ago, about personality of players yeah. being so, so important. It is. And, and, and one thing that I've noticed in the last few games as well, and again, I'm not pinning this on Gwendouzi or Ozil, but the group seem very much as a collective and there is a... You're, you're, you're seeing players talking to each other more often in these drinks breaks, which really should be renamed tactical breaks. You're seeing real concentration from, from groups of players. 
that that I just that I, I wasn't seeing before. It's it, yeah, it's it's it, yeah. I think sometimes, no matter how good a player is, sometimes you you have to move them on if they're not the right fit for the overall dressing room because one disruptive influence can can topple everything. Unfortunately, um, inside a football dressing room so so yeah I, I, I do see maybe a change being made there yeah because you know one of the essences of coaching is communication and what struck me what well, you know, on the big picture level Gwenduzi is being used to transmit a message you know a managerial statement there's interesting uh, you know very good scout Miguel Rios, who is working now in, in the sort of data area, he made a really ob- interesting observation at the weekend looking at Arteta. He said that Arteta didn't stop talking to Danny Ceballos mm. throughout it all. And there was that, it was interesting, you also said there, Aid, about the photographs. There was a, there was a, there was a really interesting photograph uh, taken in one of those drinks breaks where the defence... And Aubameyang uh, uh, was behind them, and they were absolutely lasered into what Arteta was telling them. You know, there was no, oh, well, I'll drink a water or I'll turn around and you know do, do my thing. They were absolutely into the manager, and I thought that was a really important sign. And and results like like the one they achieved at Wolves. Let's face it, Wolves one of the most informed teams in the league. Very hard to break down. Results like that will just only intensify the player's belief in, in the manager and his ideas. So, yeah, I, I do think that they're on board with, with, with his messages. But you do need results to, to, to maintain that level to some degree. Footballers, they, they want to work with, with progressive coaches. They want to work with people that they think can, can improve them. So I think there's, there'll be a real desire to, to impress him between now and the end of the season. It, it, it's, it's funny how things turn around quickly it's yeah it's only four games there's a, there's so much more work to be done but i do think that the basics of of defending of discipline of shape of structure they are sinking in now and and when you've got the talent that arsenal have in, in certain areas of the pitch going forward that's a decent recipe that's a good place to start the rebuild so yeah arteta is looking like a better choice with every week that passes, in my opinion. And I would still say that if they were to lose the next game, even the next two games, he is, he is a good appointment. What do you make of Leicester, Seb? You know, they probably needed to get Vardy firing again. Was it 101 goals now, isn't it? And 205 appearances. Tielemans compensated for some of their weaknesses, I thought, at the weekend. Uh, what about Madison? He's, he's he's not really been at the races, is he? No, I, I think we've been a little bit early with the anointing oil with Madison. Um, <laughs> nice player, um, attractive footballer to watch, neat and tidy on the board. Where can I get my hands it. on this anointing oil? That sounds, sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I um I, I I'm not sure, I, and I I'm I'm willing to take the social media pelters for saying this. I'm not sure he's that good. I mean, I, I think he's quite a good footballer. I think he's a he's somewhere between a, a seven and eight out of ten. I just think it's it's one of those situations where we've been a little bit knee jerk with him because he's English and because he plays the game in a certain way. I'm a little bit concerned by the the standard of his the general standard of his performance against really good sides. Now, this is a kind of a, a team failing as much as it is an individual one, but. My Leicester this season, when they've been up against Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, they have not let themselves down. I think that's a little bit harsh, 
but they fail to deliver. They fail to do themselves justice. When we think of that as a theme, Madison is the player I think of because they have huge issues in midfield. They almost depend on their centre-halves, especially against a side like Manchester City or Manchester United against Chelsea. It's a worry because you wonder whether Brendan Rodgers has the ability to... Because this team is based on this, this kind of nucleus of young players who are all at the same stage of their career, it's going to depend on a little bit of a quantum leap if they can become the kind of side that can routinely win that sort of game. I just, I, I don't know. I'm not as sold on them as I am, as everyone else seems to be. And that includes Madison. I just don't. Is he a bit fair weather? I'm not, I, I, that might be a, a really unkind thing to say, but that's what I think of him. Let's look at Wolves, if we could, Aid. They're at Sheffield United on Wednesday. What were the lessons of their defeat by Arsenal? Good question. I think it was a very mechanical performance. They looked flat. I, th- I think energy levels were, were definitely down. And, and Arsenal basically did a job on them. They, they matched up, matched them up formation-wise. They squeezed Adama Traore very well, closed down the wing-backs. So as soon as those long... So what they did... They they pressurised Connor Cody, who we know loves to drill those long diagonals to the fullback to the wing backs, and from there Wolves can destroy teams. What they did was press Cody, who whose passing wasn't then as good to the to the wings, and then while the ball was in the air, their wing backs, who are effectively in direct duels with the Wolves numbers, they got touch tight and forced them to go backwards and sideways. It just slowed down the Wolves play. It was that is my one criticism of Wolves, and I think Nuno is a brilliant coach. They can be mechanical at times. And I don't think there's, aside from the, the, the glorious brilliance of Adama Traore and, and at times Jota and, and Neto when he comes, when they come on, I think that they lack a little bit of improvisation. And, and that I think is their, is their weakness. They're also obviously slow starters. We know that bottom, rock bottom, by the way, I don't know if you know this, rock bottom of the half-time league. I know that there's, <laughs> there's absolutely no medals given out for, for being champion of the half-time league, but Wolves are bottom. No team has accrued fewer points in the first half of matches than Wolves. So, so yeah, that, 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 that is a glaring weakness they, they need to, to improve on. But yeah, for me, it was, just, it was just a little bit too robotic, too mechanical. And what he did, he fell into the trap, Nuno, in this game. Fell into the trap that a lot of managers do when they're chasing. He chucked on everyone he could think of that was a forward <laughs> player. And then the structure that Wolves, and Wolves are all about structure, the structure just completely went. And he had Neto, Jota, Traore and Jimenez on the pitch at once. And no one knew where to go. No one knew which runs to make. It was an absolute mess, actually, from a forward perspective towards the end. So so lessons to be learned. I, I do expect them to respond against Sheffield United, because that, that was below par for them. Lest we forget, they've only used 20 players, haven't they, in the in the league this season. Mm. So is that lack of depth going to be decisive, you know, in the short term at least? Because if you look at it, there will need to be recruitment in the summer or what, what passes as a summer. Yeah, I mean, it's a balance though, Mike, isn't it? <clears throat> because, I mean, obviously it's quite a small squad compared with the rest of the Premier League, but and what do we associate with Wolves and Nuno? It's cohesion. Adrian's described it as robotic and mechanical, and I don't disagree, but their meal ticket has been that cohesion, that tactical understanding. So when you start adding to a squad, you've got to make sure that the thing you're not sacrificing is the thing that, you, that has brought you to this point. Recruitment, I, actually, I, th- I think Wolves have done a really good job of recruitment. We talked about Neto is um, 
Neto was one of those players that when he arrived and you saw who his agent was, you thought, oh, hello. Okay, you're, you're going to be parked and you're going to be <laughs> you know, bounced out somewhere else for profit. Actually, he's a really, really good player. That's kind of been the mold of the Mendes sort of whatever, however you term his involvement at Wolves. This has been a, a theme of players that have come in, have been integrated really nicely and have actually not just found positions, but found roles within the side. So I've got, I've got a lot of faith in them. Also, like the, there are players there that we, we haven't seen the best of yet and who are still maturing. Someone like Mats Kilman is really interesting, like a former futsal player. And, you know, I, I, I want to see his involvement as they get the opportunity to, to kind of integrate him full-time into a defence. I don't want to see them go silly. I mean, I, I, you don't want to see them starting to sort of march an army of sort of 30, 40 million pound players through the door just for the sake of providing volume to the squad. It's got to be in the right measures. But recruitment, you know, is always, you know, we say this almost every episode, don't we? It's absolutely key. And, you know, the players and their agents are playing their games yet again, aren't they, Age? If you think about it, Almiron and St. Maximam have a couple of good games and they're suddenly too good for Newcastle <laughs> and they're being linked with Arsenal. You know, yeah. we're never going to get around that, are we? Well, look, well, it depends. If this takeover goes through, then then will will they be good enough for Newcastle if they got the money <laughs> to, to go and spend, I wonder. All I'll say on those two is that there has never been a better time for them to be at Newcastle because... Have you noticed it before the pandemic and, and since they've moved away from the back five, they've gone to a, a four man defence and they've ditched the defensive style. It's it's far more expansive now. They are playing with an attacking mindset. And hey, presto, these two guys are getting onto the ball inside the opposition half and making a difference. They look outstanding, don't they? I, I, I think they're clearly two very talented players, but, but prior to, to the change in formation... They were getting about five touches apiece inside the opposition half, weren't they? And expected to yeah. pr- to produce miracles. So, so f- if I was the agent of Almiron and St. Maximum right now, I'd be I'd be saying keep do- keep doing what you're doing, keep doing what you're doing, because it's finally we have a shape, a formation, an attitude within the team that suits you. So um, yeah, th- th- they're a joy to watch. And, and actually, how, I, how frustrating? Yeah, go on. Sorry, I was just. I mean, how frustrating is that? Because both. I mean. Sam Maxman to a lesser degree, but Almiron has had quite a long bedding in period and he's just started to find a kind of rhythm with some of the players there. On top of which, of course, we've got the takeover potentially going through at some point and a better standard of player approaching. So how short-sighted do you have to be to, to, <laughs> to think this is the moment to abandon everything that's been worked for up to this point and to move on somewhere else and to to start again? Because Almiron, like someone like Almiron, Almiron needs to feel comfortable, I think. He's not, he's not a good enough player just to be dropped in any side and to make a difference. He, he's a component. It, it frust- I, I know I've just butted in and, and ruined your, your, your line of thought there, Ed, mm-hmm. but I think it's worth it because it's just it's so yeah. frustrating. No, definitely. And he's, he's, so, he's, he's, he's so started mindless. to feel at home. And, yeah. and yeah, I think Almiron should absolutely stay put. So Maximan, the excitement is there because of what Traore is delivering, I think. Because they, they are, obviously they're not the same. But there's, there, there are similarities in their in the excitement that they produce, and I think that that people are maybe elevating St. Maximan to to a higher level than what than what they should at the moment because that hat trick of assists the other day at Bournemouth was not the norm for him. It, 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 I, I, I don't think he'd had very many assists at all prior to that. So I think if I was going to be looking into the market for for a St. Maximan type player. 
as tempted as I would be, I'd want to see how he fares over a longer period in product wise before I started uh, getting the old checkbook out. Mm, but you know, to, to to use a very well worn phrase, show me the money. That's always <laughs> been the phrase in in football, isn't it? And in that sense, Seb. What about the counter-attractions financially of the Bundesliga? Can you see, for instance, the, I can see the football logic of Jude Bellingham joining Borussia Dortmund, but what's he going to get, £54,000 a week at 17? That would blow my head off when I was 27, let alone <laughs> 37 even. <laughs> um, and you know, what about the finances of the German game? You know, you've got Leroy, Leroy Sane going to, to Bayern. He's on three hundred eighty-five grand a week. That was startling. In any other situation, it's what you'd expect of Bayern Munich. But, um, I mean, goodness me, uh, given the conditions at the moment and given the uncertainty about the game's revenue stream, that is an awful lot of money. Wonderful player. I'm sad to see him leave because I, uh, I, I, he, he, was, uh, he was one of those players that was, yes, obviously great to watch on, um, on television, but an absolute joy in person to see Leo Rosane take on a defender. Bellingham, I mean, one of the, uh, we've speak, spoken about sort of the... Um, the footballing advantages and the financial advantages. But I think one of the, the, the hidden benefits of him going there is he goes outside the goldfish bowl. Bellingham, to me, is one of the most unusual central midfield prospects I've seen in a really, really long time. I think he's an incredibly complete player for his age. And he is the classic example of someone who, if he was playing for a an Everton, an Arsenal, a Spurs, whatever... The, the press would be all over him very, very quickly. The, the public would be all over him. He would be a star within the space of six months. I think going to Dortmund doesn't preclude that from happening because as we've seen with Jadon Sancho, you can become very, very big very quickly because the game is global and everyone sees everything that happens in the Bundesliga in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. At the same time, I think it's an opportunity for him to grow slightly off stage. And I think that's important because I think he is... Maybe, Aid, you might be a better place to ask this. You're uh, you're more over the football league than I am, but he could be the best of the lot, I think, Bellingham, yeah. um, of this generation of players. Well, he's certainly he's certainly been the one who was talked about. I remember doing uh, when I was doing a book, you know, speaking about him, and it was a bit like it was a bit Rooney esque. He was always the name, you know. Have you heard of Bellingham? And he was he was spoken of in whispers, and you know, he was good. He had a, he's got a very good family around him who have been shielding him. And I suppose, you know, we go back to what we were talking about with, with Mason Greenwood, isn't it? It's it's basically these these kids have to have their feet on the ground because they're going to fly otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, th- do you think, just to sort of wrap this up, Aid, if, I'm, if I may, is there any any theme here that we're, we're talking about? Seb talked about, you know, a huge generation of players coming through, a lot of young players coming through. Mm. For your thought for the day, can you just... Give me an idea of what you think England's prospects are over the next two years. Oh, so so exciting. I think that the delay of Euro 2020 could, will enhance our chances of, of winning that competition next summer because there are players that would have missed out this summer. I don't think Greenwood would have been in the squad. I don't think Foden would have been in the squad. You know, who knows what Bellingham can do between between now and then as well. I think that that as we sit here in 12 months' time, we could be basking in the glory of a, of a, a really long run in the Euros, if, if not a triumph, because these young players are fearless and they are good enough. You're, you're seeing them mix it 
at Premier League level in some very, very strong teams and look completely at home. It's Yeah, it, it is. You don't like to, to label them golden generation, platinum generation, whatever tag. Because that's all a bit cliched, but but I don't think I've ever been as as excited by a, a crop of players. The, these are mm. these are the real deal, and and crucially, they're guys that 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 will, can impact the team at the top end of the pitch as well. These are, these are creators, goal scorers, natural match winners. Southgate's going to have a lot of match winners at his disposal. The issue remains: where are the brilliant? Young central defenders. Where are the, the the brilliant young fullbacks? Are they coming through? That's the one question mark. But but yeah, it, it doesn't get much more exciting than this this crop. Okay, so Seb, uh, we began you know by subjecting you to the the psychodrama of uh, Mr. Mourinho. Um, what would you like to finish with? I'm still angry about a VAR issue, Mike. <laughs> oh, um, sorry to to to. No, you're right that though. So the decision in the Sheffield United-Tottenham game, the handball is the handball. I still haven't actually seen conclusive proof that it hit Lucas Moura's hand, but so be it. The clarity that I need is I want to know what happens to the offside rule in that situation, to the um, the advantage rule in that situation. Because the way it looked from that game is it appears as if neither Chris Kavanagh or uh, Michael Oliver understands the procedure by which if an advantage is going on at the point at which VAR intervenes, what happens to the restart? Now, the Premier League are really, really, really good at at, um, giving clarifications when they're right and when the uh, laws support their stance. When they're wrong and when they don't have someone to throw under the bus, e.g. Hawkeye the other week, there's just deafening silence. And I think it's ridiculous because we now have this vagary within the rule. I don't know the law here, and that cannot be. Uh, So when, when, when a mistake is made, there has to be an ownership of that. So I want to know. So if if a, if a, if an advantage is underway, and VAR spots a handball and, and and calls the play dead, how are we supposed to restart? Was well, this a mistake, or is this a a change that has been um, imposed on the game that we haven't heard about? It's a bizarre situation, and it's a bit sad that like five days later I'm still going on about it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm with you. That, that's just about me being a boring person. That's not. <laughs> but nevertheless, nevertheless, I still want to know the answer to this. Yeah, no, I hear, I hear your pain. Yeah. Well, I'm going to end with Liverpool. You know, we, we have not mentioned them so far, which is amazing when you think about it. Now, look, we all know that Jurgen Klopp's one of the good guys. He's emotionally engaged, he's empathetic, he understands football's place in everyday life. Yet the trademark smile masks a ruthless taskmaster and a seeker of the most marginal gains. I suppose what we're also beginning to understand is that he understands the human dynamics of professional sport. That's why he's promised to fund a Premier League winner's medal for each and every member of his squad no matter what the rules say about a minimum number of appearances. Now, to me, that's a mark of mutual trust and respect and a reward for collective commitment. Because, look, the cause is identical whether you're an underemployed squad member or an ever-present star. Klopp practices what he preaches. Give me your all and I'll be there for you. Now, I'd play my heart out for him, wouldn't you? So... Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast and stay safe.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.